For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, saying hello to our friends in Slovenia, and then reminding you to sign up for the podcast on top of all the usual stuff. Which this week includes the New York Times asking, quote, is this the end of summer as we've known it, end quote? To which, as usual with rhetorical headline questions and alarmist scare stories, the answer is no. Followed in this case by, why do you ask? Not least because the day after the story appeared, the high in New York City was 25 degrees Celsius, well below the normal seasonal figure of 29. And the day we filmed this video, I checked again, and it was 25. Despite which, the Times of course said yes, invited people to, quote, follow our live coverage of extreme weather and climate change, end quote, then hyperventilated that, quote, wildfires roared across the West, monsoons swept cars from the road in Arizona, Pennsylvania songbirds were dying. This is the summer that feels like the end of summer as we have known it, end quote. Oh, really? Did it to you? Did you feel what that Times writer, a climate scientist with a BA in journalism from Penn State, that, quote, the seasoned Americans thought we understood of playtime and ease, of a sun we could trust, air we could breathe, and a natural world that was, at worst, indifferent, has become something else, something ominous and immense in a welter of heat-buckled roads, freak monsoons, and collapsed buildings, end quote. Now, as it happens, this writer was in Los Angeles, where, again, the day we filmed this video, the high was 29, whereas typically at this time of year, it's 29. Where, indeed, are the summers of yesteryear? Or the common sense, or the desire not to have people toss the paper aside in disgust because it's full of zealotry and nonsense. Including that stuff about a monsoon in Arizona. Not because they didn't have one, but because they always do. They have a monsoon season. And in fact, in this case, a local news story said, quote, recent monsoon rain helps improve Arizona drought conditions, end quote, and begged for more. Still, across the pond, The Guardian also declared that British summers are changed forever. Quote, Last year was the first to figure in the top ten for heat, rain, and hours of sunshine, in records stretching back more than a century, as moderate British weather is rapidly becoming a thing of the past. End quote. Indeed it is. The high in London, England today was 21, and the low was 14, hot enough to fry an egg on the newspaper headline or the graphic. Oh, and as for those songbirds, there have been odd deaths in more than a few northeastern states since April in a mysterious outbreak that resembles one in the 1990s. So, obviously, climate change is to blame. And speaking of weather, we also want to pass on another tidbit from Ron Barmby's overview book, Sunlight on Climate Change, page 50, saying, quote, From 1779 to 1818, a world-famous astronomer, William Herschel, noticed a correlation between sunspots and the price of wheat in England as independently published by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. Years with more sunspots produced better harvests, and the wheat price dropped." End quote. So yes, we've known for 250 years that sunspots affect weather measurably. Uh, we being a word here not including people who write for most newspapers, apparently, or climate modelers, who use the limited variability in the sun's overall energy output to brush aside the significant fluctuations in solar wind and, with it, the impact of cosmic rays on the Earth and its cloud cover. As with many modern-day policy issues, Adam Smith knew better. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Because at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one, 
I'm not talking a lot of money though. If you've got it, we'll take it. $2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. Meanwhile, the Earth is apparently on fire, which threatens to freeze it. No, really, a story out of Australia would have you believe that the latest threat from global warming is fires so intense that their smoke darkens the sky and causes cooling. Which might sound like problem solved. Yet another negative feedback mechanism that keeps things in balance. But no. This is climate change. And in fact, according to the story, we're talking nuclear winter here. And obviously, nuclear is bad. It also says, quote, Fire thunderstorms not only create their own weather system, but may also be powerful enough to actually change the climate, according to scientists from Australia and the United States, end quote. And everybody knows that changing the climate is bad, especially when scientists say. Awkwardly, new data has shown that forest fires, which were not becoming more common in the 20th century anyway, have actually been getting less frequent for centuries. But should they notice this fact, instead of being reassured, one expects alarmists to go, ah, warming is suppressing the cooling fires, we're all gonna die. <sighs> well, while we're on the subject of Barmby's book, he makes a very interesting point about carbon taxes, starting with the fact that energy is so essential and fossil fuels so overwhelmingly the only reliable choice that, quote, gasoline, or petrol if you prefer, has a demand curve that economists call inelastic. That means the average consumer will still buy about the same amount of gasoline regardless of price within a reasonable range, end quote. Which might seem to raise the question, what carbon price do alarmists think will get us out of that reasonable range? And it does raise that question, particularly because of a very common sense observation that Barmby then makes. He says the price of energy has fluctuated dramatically in recent years up and down with no discernible impact on demand for gasoline. And he adds, quote, the price for natural gas and home heating is at historic lows in North America, but homeowners are not turning up their thermostats from 20 degrees Celsius to 25 degrees Celsius because the heat is cheaper, end quote. There's that inelastic demand again, on which basis we issue a challenge to our foes and for that matter, our friends, though we think we know their answer. How many of you have turned the thermostat down in winter or up, or down in summer or up in the last three years because of the price of fuel? And if not, what kind of carbon tax would it take to get through to you? $50 a ton? $250? 1000 Because if the alarmists won't say, we assume they either don't know or won't dare to admit it, neither of which is conducive to intelligent discussion. And if we do get an answer to that, we want to come back to another question. What is the ideal temperature and how important is it to stay within a degree or two of it? Really, if CO2 is the control knob on the global thermostat, and if we could set it anywhere we wanted, what would you choose? We're waiting. And while we do, let's poke fun at a recent story that, as the National Post headline put it, quote, the catwalk is growing a conscience, end quote. The story says, quote, as anxiety about climate change and the welfare of garment workers has deepened, the $2.5 trillion global fashion industry is under pressure from consumers and increasingly governments to improve its ecological and social footprint, end quote. Well, maybe. And one day, maybe those strange outfits that models wear when they're rich and snobby gather could be made of pineapple waste or mushrooms. But they'd still be shown before an audience who arrived on private jets to see models who arrived in stretch limousines. 
Seriously, when you read that the Manhattan restaurant Serendipity 3 now offers the world's most expensive french fries at $200 a serving, complete with edible gold, to go with its world record $295 burger and, we're not making this up, $1,000 ice cream sundae, who do you think's eating there? Trump-supporting Appalachian deniers? or impeccably liberal folks, impeccably attired in the latest fashion, and so concerned about the plight of the poor, they can barely dip their twice-goose-fat fried potatoes sprinkled with both truffle salt and truffle oil into their Mornay cheese dip, also, of course, infused with truffles. Right, it's the same sort who'll fly to hear Bill Gates on climate change at an investment bank's oh-so-exclusive summer camp for billionaires in Sun Valley, Idaho, in such numbers that they cause a private jet traffic jam. Though I should note, Dell is apparently now refusing to ship high-end gaming computers to California and several other deep blue states because of local power consumption regulations. Possibly if firms also stop shipping truffles, or if cities start refusing landing rights to private jets, we'll see whether these people's conscience is more than just a lifestyle accessory. And speaking of hypocrites, apparently the climate debate ended again, this time courtesy of former insignificant Labour Party leader Ed Miliband in The Guardian. He says, quote, our biggest enemy is no longer climate denial, but climate delay. The most dangerous opponents of change are no longer the shrinking minority who deny the need for action, but the supposed supporters of change who refuse to act at the pace the science demands, end quote. And that's exactly right. In this otherwise tedious and cliche-riddled piece, Miliband does manage to highlight that it's worse to endorse alarmism and then engage in feeble virtual signaling than either to go all in on remedies or, to say frankly, you don't buy the supposed science. It's the people who say one thing and do another who are the real deniers. Deniers of the importance of logic and of honesty, without which, again, no real discussion can happen. In the newsletter, we also have another installment of University of Guelph professor Ross McKittrick's look at Stephen Coonan's landmark book, Unsettled, and this week it's on extreme weather. You know, everybody's heard that storms and hurricanes are becoming more common and more severe because of greenhouse gases. But according to Coonan, these claims are groundless. And at the heart of the problem is these various official assessment reports, which Coonan says present a summary spin that's inconsistent even with their own findings, let alone the underlying research. And of course, it then gets magnified by journalists. In chapter 6 of his book, called Tempest Terrors, Coonan starts by citing a scary headline claim about Atlantic hurricanes from the 2014 U.S. National Climate Assessment, which is coupled with a scary chart showing them trending upward after 1980. But... The text of the report stated the opposite, and so did the paper on which the claims were allegedly based. So the real terror here is the extent to which government agencies are willing to misrepresent things, or tolerate their being misrepresented when it's their job to say something. As usual, we have two studies from CO2Science.org. One is on how carbon dioxide affects two varieties of soybean, which, whether you like tofu or not, and I'm going with not, is a very major food crop for humans and livestock. And yep. Once again, plants like plant food. It's almost as if there were a pattern here, because the other study looked at how CO2 affects 24 varieties of soybean. There are only so many research topics, even a world as amazingly diverse as ours. And Also, if farmers can figure out which among hundreds of soybean cultivars most like CO2, well, there will be more food. And we'll let you guess what the study found. Yep, CO2 does all sorts of good things for soybeans. Yay, more tofu. On which cheerful note, I'm going to do the usual pitch for you to subscribe, share, and support our work. 
For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson.